Well, good evening, everybody. So good to see you. I apparently am very thirsty tonight. So this is really good. No, I'm grateful for this. Um, thanks for, for coming back and leaning in and uh, opening your heart. And because right now these, uh, these questions of end times are real. And so we just, um, we want to open the scriptures, let them speak to us, and ask God to give us understanding, clarity, peace, and a clear path forward for how we are to live our lives. And um, that's the heart behind all of this. So I want to get started because we are going to cover a lot tonight, so let's pray. Father, we love you, we worship you, we exalt you. You are our source. You are our, our leader. Jesus, we worship you. You are the leader of this church. You're the leader of your people. God, I am an under-shepherd, and I'm a teacher of your word. And God, I pray that you would um, guide my tongue and guide my words to speak your truth, that nothing I say, God, that would be offensive to you or lead your people astray, that you would strike it. Lord, that you would guide this time, that we would honor you. Holy Spirit, we welcome you to come and bring confirmation to your word, confirmation to the hearts of our church family together tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to begin tonight um, by explaining the purpose. And this is uh, some of the things I, I continue to come back to, but the purpose of how and why I am teaching about eschatology. Um, I, a lot of this flows from um, experience, and um, the heart behind it flows from the experience of, of seeing some difficult things manifest in churches around eschatology. And uh, if you've ever been a pastor in ministry or, or an elder, and I know we have some pastor, pastors here and elders here, you've also seen it as well. And so um, what we do know is this, is that the heart of Jesus for the church is unity. And it's through unity that we scream to the world, shout to the world that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that we follow. And so <clears throat> over, my, over my, my, my years of, and I've been in full-time ministry, I was thinking about this today, I thought, man, surely that can be right. For 25 years I've been in full-time ministry. I began in college. And so I've had the opportunity to pastor many different uh, capacities, many different denominations. Um, when you grow up in a charismatic environment, uh, especially 25 years ago, you know, any denomination except for yours is uh, like of the devil or something. But as I learned quickly, that's not the case. Uh, <laughs> there's godly people in different denominations. Who would ever thought that? Uh, so I, so I, I, was, I was able to have some experiences, right, different capacities. Like one, I was a pastor at a church called John Calvin Presbyterian Church. That was interesting. Um, and I, but I grew a lot there. I also been in staff at charismatic churches, um, Baptist churches, been a part of the Baptist Union in the UK. So I, I've, I've, I've seen some interactions regarding the, the uh, teachings of eschatology that didn't always produce good fruit. Um, and that always perplexed me. Um, I've been around the world, and uh, eschatology isn't actually that big of a deal in other parts of the world like it is here um, in America. They don't divide over it. Um, they laugh about it. Uh, but I also, in Bible college, I had um, two professors um, who, uh, one pastored a church, one had, had a doctorate in 
something, something, you know, I don't know. But uh, they, they, they disagreed on eschatology. In other words, the timeline of events and how things were going to happen. And I'll never forget uh, in chapel, they were, they were always kind of, and that's what you do. You, you kind of make fun of each other, you know, and whatever. And so one of them who believed in the pre-trib rapture, um, the other one believed in uh, post, and he was a post-millennialist, uh, and he, he got up to speak. He said, you know, my, my prayer is that we, we just get whatever we believe in our eschatology. And he said, and so what I'm praying is that when I'm raptured, I've asked the Lord that I will be raptured upside down so I can stick my tongue out at Professor so-and-so on my way up. Uh, they were laughing, you know, it was just good fun. Um, and so I've, that, that's been my environment in all of this. And so I, it, it was never something to divide over. And, um, and so... I don't believe it is today either. Um, what matters is how we live our lives and what is the mission that God has us on. But there are some very important things regarding end time events. And so some of the details of the biblical end time events are mysteries. They just are. And we're going to look at some of them tonight. Um, and what that does, though, is it causes Bible teachers to want to find conclusions. So no, no one teaches the Bible to come to the end and say, so I don't know. That's, you know, that's just not, that's not us as Americans. We want to know, like, you know, inquiring minds, tell us what it is. And, uh, but sometimes they're mysteries, and mysteries make people uncomfortable. Um, and so in order to kind of give that peace, oh, I know, sometimes we connect dots that aren't there, or we conclude on things in a dogmatic way that is unnecessary. So if you don't fully understand something, um, what something means or the timeline of something, um, it's, it, and you go, you know, it's, maybe it's both. That's ambiguity. And so ambiguity makes us uncomfortable. And because some of our conclusions were crafted through interpretation, I'm going to speak about that in just a moment, um, were crafted through an interpretation regarding end-time prophecies and events. That's really where a lot of this applies. Um, <clears throat> it, it, it's, it's unsettling. And when someone presents a different idea, we get unsettled. And so I just, I just want to, um, first off, I want to encourage you, embrace the unsettled. Ask God. Lean into it. Pray. Get some resources. Um, I, re I read books regarding all kinds of stuff that some I don't agree with at all. And I don't go, well, it said it. There, it must be true. No, it's, it's a continual growing of of. of who I am as a teacher of God's word, but also in partnership with the Holy Spirit. Um, <clears throat> so because some of our conclusions about end time events um, were, are unsettling if it's different than ours, what I've seen in 25 years of, of ministry is that the enemy has exploited some of these mysteries, um, some of the mysteries of end time events, and has used people's different opinions to bring division and the body of Christ. Unity is the purpose of family. Um, you are my family. Unity is the purpose of family. And so um, you, can be, are, you can be in a family. Do, if you're married, do you and your spouse agree on everything? <laughs> right, we laugh because we're like, no way. You know. um, do kids agree? Do families agree? No, no, we don't. But, but we, we unify. And that's what family is. You fight for unity, and you don't, and you don't um, give up quickly. 
You lean in. You have conversations. You talk it through. You grow together. You serve together. And you have different opinions that are about non-essentials. So um, many of these opinions on end times are non-essentials, meaning, meaning this, that they're, they're not based around salvation. They're not about the work of Christ. They are possibilities on the timeline of the return of Jesus. So because I'm a Bible teacher, I also strive very hard to give an, I understand, I, mean, I have to give an account for what I teach. So I do my best to not use my imagination um, to teach you God's word, and I strive. So my philosophy is this, and that hopefully you can understand this, and if you've been here for the seven years I've led, you know this is the case. I strive for biblical purity and clarity, and my philosophy is this, where the Bible shouts, I shout. Where it whispers, I whisper. And I feel like that is a, that is a, um, a good balance as we lean into the word of God. Um, and where division historically has come in the body of Christ around eschatology is where people decide to shout what the Bible whispers. If you think about all the different divisions, it's someone shouting what the Bible whispers. And so they create, it creates some, some division there. So we're not going to do that, but we are going to grow together and it's going to be a lot of fun. So there's many things in, in the scriptures the a believer must prioritize. And so we want to prioritize these things, but when it comes to end time events, there is a, um, we need to prioritize the idea of the, the, the fulfillment of prophecy. We want to practically, intellectually look to see what prophecies has been fulfilled and what happened and where there is a possibility of, well, could it have been fulfilled? Could it yet be fulfilled? If you find yourself in that tension and mystery, know the joy in knowing that God is in control, and we're going to find out. And then we'll be like, oh, it was that, actually, not that. So that's, that's the journey we're on. So the essentials of the end times, in no particular order, are the return of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, the kingdom of God, eternal heaven and hell, new heaven, new earth, and rapture. Um, I think is, I say it's an essential because it does, it, ha it happens, it's there, it's just the timing of it. So these are essentials and what people divide over and the enemy comes and brings the vision and how these are going to come about, the timing of them between now and these things that we've just talked about. Um, also, Israel plays a major piece in the end time events and I, it, for us, traditionally within our church, this is a, this is a, a big deal. Um, <clears throat> so, it's under, it, but Here's what I'm striving for tonight. We must understand why some people believe the way that they believe. Because many times we're looking for the gotcha moment where we say, oh, you believe that? Gotcha. You're wrong. And then we break fellowship. That's not the heart of God. We, we want to find the things that we go, oh, that's interesting. Let's sit. Let's reason. Let's talk to one another. Let's look to the scriptures. Um, like I said in the first um, session of this teaching, I recommended like th three books. Um, if you're interested in, in expanding some of your thoughts on eschatology, these three books. I don't agree with everything in all those books. I don't. But I want us to grow and learn. And so, as I also said, we want to keep our hearts humble. and We check our pride. And, uh, and we continue to go on a journey. Something for you to understand, we, uh, regarding es uh, eschatology and a, uh, a conclusion on a particular position, which we're going to look at in just a moment. We, we would never not hire a pastor and ministry leader here at our church because they hold a different timeline 
of how these essentials are going to come about. It, it's, it's not a question about, well, what's, what's your position of eschatology? Oh, sorry. And, and I just ask you also to do the same with, when speaking to one another, do not fall into the devil's trap of dividing over timelines. Let's hold mysteries loosely and, and allow them to be mysteries until, until we get to all find out together. And I doubt when we all find out together, we'll be like, ha ha, I told you, we won't care. We won't care. Uh, if you, I, I don't know, you might be a goat if you're ha ha, I told you I, at the end. I don't know, we'll have to see. But, uh, but let's grow the kingdom together. Let's grow as a church family. Let's reach our city for Jesus. Let's reach the hurting and the broken. Let's, let's be a light. Let's preach the gospel with our lives, with our words, with our deeds. Let's be a testimony to the unbeliever and unite on the essentials that Jesus told we actually are to do. So what I want to do today is why are there problems and disagreements surrounding a person's position regarding the timeline of end time events? How do we, and, and where these problems come in is how do we interpret prophecy and end time events? So this is, this is where the problems come in. So we're going to look at certain areas and questions that need attention, attention because there are essentials in end time events. We all know that Christians disagree. Um, we all know that. And, you know, Every, this is what I've seen over 20 years, every time something happens in, in Israel, and we pray for them, we stand for them, side note, there is going to be a prayer vigil for um, Israel on Tuesday evening, and I'm going to announce it on Sunday, but I was going to invite the church, um, so, but since we're talking about it, please know that if you could clear your evening um, for about, it, it's only a half hour, but it's, there's going to be other Jewish leaders, and so we want to we want to go there. I'm going to be going early to meet with some of them, but we want to invite you to come out and pray for Israel. But, but this idea, um, we, we want to grow together. So there are essentials around end-time events. We do disagree on, on some things, but most of us don't know why we disagree. Most of us don't know why. We have, we go, uh-uh, well, nope, I, I, don't, I don't agree. But we don't even know why. And so we're not going to allow disunity in our church to, to, to happen anytime something, anytime someone teaches on eschatology or something's happening in Israel. Um, what is at the heart of the disagreement? What are the presumptions that leads us to different places and different conclusions? And so my heart as, as, as the pa- a pastor and a teacher of the Bible um, is... For you to know how to think about these things versus me tell you what to think about them. Because it's really important. Um, most of us, especially things that are mis- mysterious, want to hear, tell me what to think. And then I'll tell you if I agree with you or not. My heart is to teach us how to think about them so that we can move forward together. Um, so... And this is directly connected to how we read the Bible individually. Um, so on the onset here, as we get into this, we have to establish we have an absolute total faith in God's word. Um, that is, his word has been given to us by God. But how do we interpret the scriptures, particularly the end time prophecies? Do we interpret them literally in all passages? My, my point here is this. If we, if we do this rigidly, on prophetic passages regarding um, Old Testament prophecies, the book of Revelation, 
<clears throat> if we do it literally, then, then sometimes we're actually distorting and misunderstanding the passage. So we should totally believe that the Bible is the absolute word of God, and we're to read it contextually. And I would say this, we are to read it naturally. Read it naturally in the, in the, in the context and the manner which it was written. So, so we take it the way it presents itself. We take that. So it's kind of like this. So Jesus said in John 10, 9, I am the door. So if we applied everything to a literal sense of translation, then we should look for a doorknob if we want to get saved, an actual doorknob, and we should look for an actual door. Well, I know that sounds foolish, but that's, that's the point that I'm making. When David says, God makes us lie down in green pastures in, in Psalm 23, then all Christians should go lie down in a green pasture and make sure it has still water next to it. But we know that's not what it's saying. It's, we, we understand there's a contextual flow to it. So um, <clears throat> I know that sounds silly, but, and there are other examples in history, in the history of the church, where people have taken something literally that actually isn't, isn't what was designed. So when Jesus said, hey, I, like this is the blood of the new covenant, and this bread represents my flesh, he wasn't actually saying we're, we're, we are, to, it, it's not actually becoming flesh. We're not actually eating human flesh when we take communion. We're not actually drinking blood. But through church history, they said, well, that's what he said. That's what it means. So they teach, particularly the Catholic church regarding it's the real, it's the actual blood and it's the actual flesh of Jesus. And you go, well, I don't, I think cannibalism is, is not a good thing, you know. But that's where the literal has been used when something that wasn't literal. So we have to determine how, what is the tension that we look at um, in time prophecy. So um, that's, what, that's what we need to do. So in, meaning uh, there are prophecies that we have in the end time scriptures that are written in a way that's called, um, it, it's um, apocalyptic. So that apocalyptic writings are, there's a lot of imagery um, it, there's poetry, and so the apocalyptic writing, it's, it, there's weird pictures of imagery, um, and it's kind of like, you know, you read the book of Revelation, and, and you say, man, if John would have seen an Apache helicopter, like, firing a, a 50 cal out the side door, he would have been like, it was a scorpion flying in the air. Why? Because that's how you would describe something that you saw with, with the context. So you have to understand there is, there is some of this, um, you, you have to use some um, intellectual understanding of writing. So um, <clears throat> di different scenes. So the, the apocalyptic scenes are, we, we're, we're, we're getting a glimpse through a combination of vivid word pictures. And we're going to get to some of this main stuff real soon. Word pictures, poetic, allegory. So we get a lot of um, uh, imagery in Revelation, Zechariah, and Daniel. And if you read it rigidly, literally, you have to believe that Jesus has a literal sword coming out of his mouth. We know that's, not, that's, a, that's symbolic of something. Well, yeah, okay, that's right. So we have to understand sometimes there are things that are symbolic, sometimes there are things that are literal. And we're where the interpretation comes is where you place the literal and where you place the symbolic. And so the question is for us as Christians, why are there so many disagreements among us? Because these interpretations can be challenging, and, uh, and if, we, if, we, 
if we build walls around them, um, they can be destructive to the unity that God has called us to have. But it can be unsettling. So what, what I have found that in my relationship with other professors, other pastors, um, is that unity for the, for the kingdom of God on the earth is you can have unity while having different ideas regarding the timeline of events. And so I've, I, I have seen people bring glory to Christ who have different eschatolo eschatology and how they see it. So that's, that is my beginning epilogue. I've said the same thing eight times in different ways, but I just wanted you to have that. So as we come to the end of this, I, I, want, you, I want to help you um, at the end understand why you believe what you believe, but also regarding end time events, I want you to understand why you disagree with someone else. Why do you believe what you believe? Why do you disagree with someone else? And be able to articulate it. So why do Christians disagree about end times? So we know that there are people in our church and every church around the United States that disagree about certain things in the Bible. Again, we don't know why, but we just know we disagree. So why is it we have the same Bible, we read the same passages, and we come out with different conclusions? I don't know if you ever thought about that. One way is say, well, we, we demonize someone who has a different conclusion than us, but I, I don't think that's the case. Um, again, I'm not talking about the essentials of the faith. I'm talking about the study of end-time events and prophecies. So there's two challenges, um, or sorry, the second challenge has to do with assumptions surrounding when the prophecies are fulfilled. And this is, this is the biggie. Christians make interpretive decisions before ever really going to the passage. We, we make assumptions and presumptions before we open the Bible, which becomes our filter of interpretation is what we've already concluded. So a Bible teacher, I, I, I strive not to do that. Do I still do it? Yes, um, but I strive not to. And so this is, the, this is the, the journey that you have with the prophetic prophecies. Um, so for us, I wanna get into some of these big picture questions that we're gonna be looking at. I'm gonna do it this week, I'll do it again, I believe it's next week, and then we're gonna find some other Wednesdays that I can continue with this um, so that we can move through these. What is the relationship of Israel to the church? Should we believe in a rapture? Are, are there two comings of Jesus or just one? Will there be a thousand year millennial earthly kingdom or not? Is the kingdom here already? If so, how much of the kingdom is here? What is the nature of the Abrahamic, Abrahamic covenant? So this, this, this factors greatly into end-time events, how we, how we see these things. Um, because, because these are, these, well, even like the, um, the Abrahamic covenant, like this deeply impacts what we believe. So are, are, is the covenant with Abraham is it conditional or unconditional? Um, were, were there certain things Abraham and his descendants had to do to receive these promises? It's, it's just a question. So this is, this is a question. And some people are uncomfortable even asking those just simple intellectual questions. Um, are they unconditional? And it really doesn't. Or, or are they unconditional where it really didn't matter what Abraham or his descendants did? Was the kingdom of, of, was the kingdom of God 
was it promised, sorry, was the, with the promise to Abraham, was it fulfilled under David or Solomon? Th- those are some of the things. Number seven, should we interpret prophecy literally or in some other way? Um, are, are there some prophecies we take literal? Are there some we take figuratively? I've already spoken to that. Number eight, is there a literal third temple? This is a, this is a question here because what you believe about this is kind of what sets you down one way or another. Or do these passages in the Old Testament mean something completely different? Is it speaking to the people of God who are the temple? That the, 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 the waters of life flow from us to the nations, the living waters to the nations and to the world, and through us the nations will come to worship Christ. Is that a, is that a possibility? Have you ever thought about that? Number nine, what, what, what do the 70 weeks of Daniel mean? So, is that passage connected with Messiah, with atonement, with, with crucifixion? Is it a roadmap for the second coming of Jesus as it, refers to his, as it refers to his first coming? So what are we supposed to do? So I, I want to focus on five significant questions that cause friction for Christians when it comes to end times. So what I'm going to do is walk, help us understand why people believe what they believe in their eschatology. So that, one, we can understand one another and have conversations. Two, we can then answer the question why we believe what we believe. So these are some of the five majors. The nature of the kingdom of God, which we're going to talk about today. The rapture, the 70th week of Daniel. Has the church replaced Israel? Should we interpret prophecy literally? So how these are interpreted, how these are interpreted, and it. it's like, it's like a lever. You pull it, it opens this door. Would you believe on this? You pull that, it opens that door. And so there are four positions that Christians have that allow them, that are used to interpret these five major things. There's the futurist. There's the historicist. Yeah, the idealist and the preterist. So the, these are, these are the, the four end-time positions. For example, the futurist, which we've talked a little bit about this, when the vision of Revelation was first, first given, um, the futurist would say the fulfillment of it was to be found in John's future. But because it hasn't happened yet, those events must also be in our future. So a futurist says the book of Revelation, everything is yet to happen. If someone says the beast of Revelation is, uh, is, is a, actually futurists would say this, the beast in Revelation is a revised version of the Roman Empire and now is called the European Union. That's how futurists would see the book of Revelation. When you read the scriptures, you ask, does this remind me of something I've seen in the news recently? Futurists would, would think this way. Um, historicists believe that the fulfillment was all in John's future. So, so meaning that the fulfillment began almost immediately after John wrote the book of Revelation and continues to do so down through um, church history. It's kind of like it's, it's, uh, the, it's history being rolled out, but it's, it's, it is a historical thing that happened um, for the most part. Examples, though, is in the events, let's say, of 1572, there were thousands of Protestants killed. Um, and this person that holds this position would point to that and, and say, well, that was described or, 
or fulfilled of, of the persecution described in Revelation 13, 5 through 10. So that's what, what, that's what that person would lean towards. The idealist um, really reads the book of Revelation like, um, it's like a massive parable. It's like types and shadows and examples. It's cyclical where um, it, there's, there's not one single literal fulfillment. It's a type of what will happen throughout church history. Um, it, they're illust, illustrations of the things that will happen. It's, it's illustrated by the, and by the conflict described throughout the book. This is the Christian life, and this is what it means to walk with Christ. So it's their types and shadows that inform things that we're going to go through in today in our own lives, and it applies to every age of the church all the time so we can always learn something from the book of Revelation. It's also called the spiritual interpretation. So the, these people who hold this idea would say, yes, but that's a type and shadow, and so these things can happen over and over and over within history. This position takes Revelation 11, um, like the two witnesses that are killed and raised to life again, and it, and it puts great fear in those who, who, who killed them. An idealist would say, well, that represents the, the church down throughout history. And the world appears to have utterly defeated the church, but when God vindicates his people, the enemies of God will be totally freaked out, and God will vindicate his church, and we will rise in great glory. That's the position they would come to when they, when they read the book of Revelation. The preterist, which there are different levels of preterist. Um, I've shared a little bit with you about that. Um, a full preterist well, preterist comes from the Latin prefix meaning past. But this is the view that the things prophesied in Revelation were in John's immediate future, meaning they were fulfilled in our distant past in the first century. They've already happened. It's, they're already over. Um, a preterist would interpret the seven heads of the beast in Revelation 17, 10 as the seven Roman emperors, starting with Julius. And when it was written, it was, we were at number six, that was Nero. So that's what a preterist would do. And, and so they would say that the whole letter of Revelation was for the people of that time were suffering under the Roman Empire as the age of the, the temple was, was going away. Why this is important for, for believers who are interested in eschatology is to help us understand one another. It's to help us understand where other people are coming from. We're all brothers and sisters who, who are interested in eschatology, as we sh all should be. We should all have, a, have some thought, man, what in the world's going on in the world? When is Jesus coming back? Um, how am I supposed to live today? And so we need to have an understanding of why people have certain beliefs. We also need to have an understanding that we are not to demonize other people that have different beliefs. Because, because there's a, a theologian who has changed his eschatology four times over his 45 years of ministry. And he explains why, and he's been on a journey. And, and what I appreciate about him is his humility to actually be able to say, I was this way, but then after this, I, something went off of my head, and I started thinking, man, I think it could be this. And then, and then I was reading this in Scripture, and the Holy Spirit showed me this, and I thought, oh, I think it's more this way. Most people don't have the humility to do that. Because you said, well, I said it once. I better double down. And so we, many of our eschatologies are rooted actually in pride, not actually in wanting to grow with 
Christ. How, how many here have read a passage about Jesus and seen something in it you've never seen before? Uh, raise your hand. Okay. It's the same for eschatology. And we need to give ourselves permission <laughs> to actually do that and grow with God together as we look at these events that are in front of us. So it's important we understand why other people have different thoughts. It also get, helps us take a deep breath when someone disagrees with us because instead of thinking, oh my gosh, you're a heretic, we think, you think, oh, why do you, why do you think that? Or I think I know why because of this passage and this passage, and we're gonna get into them in, in, in just a moment. Um, but it helps us take a deep breath and unify as believers around the things that really matter. So it takes maturity to be able to, to unify around things that you're, you're working out together. Um, immaturity wants to run from anything that makes them feel unsettled. Maturity causes you to lean in and say, hey, let's, let's figure this out. That's interesting. Let's talk about this. So many believers choose a position and then anchor everything to that position, um, which in my personal opinion is a mistake. So if, if you are a futurist, then you just, you, you take lock, stock, and barrel everything that a futurist would normally teach, and then you do search for things that are going to um, confirm your belief, versus I want to look at other, other, other beliefs. Um, and, and the truth is, most don't know that there were, were and are other positions and biblical explanations of their positions using the same end-time prophecies that we use to clarify ours. So my heart, while I'm teaching this, is just so you know, is I, I, I want to present this in a way that I would in a seminary class and just lay these things out so you can go, okay, all right, let's look at this and let's process through it. Um, and so unfortunately over the years, um, people with different beliefs have been um, demonized. Uh, eschatology has been a lot like um, Remember when, um, when God was doing something great in the churches through the power of the Holy Spirit, pouring his spirit out. People were, you know, using gifts and speaking in tongues. And, well, well you don't believe in speaking in tongues? Well, then, you know, you're out. Well, you do? Well, well then I'm out. And, or, well, you need the tongues to get saved? You didn't? Well, then you're not saved. Or you do? It, and it be, at that point, it became a divisive thing versus, hey, let's, let's seek God together over this. And eschatology is one of those things, especially during war and especially during things that are happening in the Middle East. So my heart is for you to discern that you, um, that you disagree with a particular conclusion of the end times and with a prophecy, why you disagree, but also be able to answer yourself and others why you believe what it is that you actually believe. So I want to begin by looking at the nature of the kingdom of God. So the question that needs to be answered here is, did the kingdom of God become a reality at Christ's first coming? So when Jesus said, the kingdom is among you, did the kingdom of God fully become on the earth? Um, Jesus said to pray that the kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven, but did it fully come? So people who would answer yes to this question would then go further to say, then we are living in the church age. And that has, that has become known as um, millennialism. So there's a, excuse me, 
amillennialism. So that is saying that there is no thousand-year reign. And the reason why it's connected is because of the literal kingdom, that at the return of Christ, there will be a thousand-year reign, which we've all heard and we've read. There's a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth from Zion. He rules, and we rule with him as believers. The timing of that is where people hold different positions. But a person who says, actually, um, there is no thousand-year reign is a person, a ah, meaning no, millennial. There won't be a thousand-year reign. But a millennialism is a literal thousand-year reign on the earth of God's kingdom. And so it's, it, these different positions place it in different spots. Um, Daniel, people place it in different spots. <clears throat> but in all millennialism or millennialist, there's no millennial reign on the earth. It will not proceed or follow the second coming of Christ. Christ will return, new heaven, new earth. All right, let's move on. It's, that's, there's that, that thousand year reign isn't there. So these people are not looking for a literal thousand year reign of righteousness and peace on the earth that would be the kingdom of God. They believe that the kingdom is now. We're in it, it's now. Um, now, so we can set them aside. They don't believe in it, so we won't talk about them. There are those now who believe in the millennial, the thousand-year reign. How many have heard of the thousand-year reign of Christ at the return of Christ? Okay, all right. So, but when is it? So there's two variations of this. And the reason why I want to share with you this, we, it, I think it's really important. What I have found is maybe I didn't do us a, a, a good, I did a disservice by not beginning like this to help people be at ease as we walk through these things that we would, you know, open our hearts and, um, and allow the, the Spirit to speak to us. Because even in some of my explanations and thoughts and things that I presented, uh, several people jumped to large conclusions regarding what I believed, and I don't believe that. Um, and, and it would sadden me, but it's, it's, it's just the way it is. So there's two variations of millennialism. There's pre-millennialism. This is the belief that the thousand years of righteous rule will begin after the second coming of Christ. That's what most of us would be familiar with. So this is looking for the future kingdom. Jesus returns, hallelujah, great day, glorious day. He comes and he rules, and there's an era of peace, an era of righteousness for a thousand years on the earth. And it's wonderful. So that's what pre-millennialism is. Post-millennialism is the return of Christ will take place after a thousand-year reign of the kingdom of God. So you go, well, how does, how does that work? Because it's been 2,000 years since the resurrection of Jesus. Well, this is um, for post-millennialism, it's not a literal thousand years. It's an age. So meaning the gospel will go forth, will transform the nations, the Great Commission will begin to actually disciple nations. There's a strong anchoring in, in a, this position that Jesus actually meant to fulfill what he said. Go and make disciples of nations. Didn't say just people, nations. Nations that bring glory to God. That blesses the nation whose God is the Lord. This is about, um, this is about through the resurrection of Jesus, he now owns every nation. There is no nation that doesn't belong to him. Before his resurrection, those, the nation that belonged to God was Israel. After his resurrection, 
Psalm 2.8, God speaking to Jesus says, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the, of the earth um, for your possession. This is now after the resurrection of Jesus. Through the church, we are a post-millennial individual who sees it, sees, sees that the church, is God's gonna use the church to bring reform on the earth and bring righteousness to the earth and it's going to influence all of of society and families. This is also a generational transference of the gospel, and it spreads to the world. Now, it doesn't mean that sin is abolished. This doesn't mean evil will be extinguished completely, but it does mean the Great Commission is transforming nations and lives and generations after generation, and the rule and reign of Christ will expand. I would hold some of this belief, not all, so don't hear what I didn't say. I would hold some of this belief because I believe in the Great Commission. I believe Jesus meant what he said. I believe that we, we should seek the peace and prosperity of the city we live in, meaning we should confront evil, meaning we should confront abortion, meaning we should stand for righteousness, meaning we should care about innocent children being indoctrinated through the, 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 uh, the agenda of just um, of, of sex or the agenda. I think we should do something about that. That's what I believe. Why? Because I believe in the Great Commission. And I believe the church should, should not control things, but the church should be a, a, a voice in the midst of, of, of darkness to bring conviction to the hearts of people. And that believers in the church should go and apply what they know, where they live, in their families, how they, their marriages, at work, at law, at a construction company, at whatever it may be, that you are to live out your faith understanding that every time you make a decision based off the word of God, God's kingdom is established and, and you have taken something back that belonged to Satan, now belongs to God. That's what I believe. Now, I don't, I'm not totally all there, but I am some. Um, I believe in a victorious movement forward. So, and there's lots of scriptures why I would say I, I believe that, but that's, that's, it's neither here nor there. What this means is that post-millennialism is that the, the church will expand, um, and the millennial, the age, will be maintained by the church, and that we are currently in the age of expansion. And then you look around, you go, I don't think we're expanding. <laughs> I don't think the world is about. Well, then, then you go, could it be? Because the church actually didn't know that's what we were supposed to do. Question, just asking it. So, when does the millennium start? And people who hold this, they would say it's right, it's right now. Um, or is it, so all these positions, when does the millennial start? Is it right now? Is it all in the future? Are we living in the age of the kingdom now? Um, and so I, there, are, there are denominations, I know the, the vineyard denomination um, that God's used to do great things through, they, they hold this idea that they believe in the kingdom now and not yet. I would hold to that as well. We see pieces of the kingdom now. We see healing now. We see deliverance now. We see the gospel now. But we don't see the fullness of the, the kingdom of God where, where there are no more tears, no more sorrow, no more sickness. No, we, we're not seeing that now. We're not seeing Satan totally destroyed. So there is the aspect of the kingdom now and not yet. Some people are unsettled by that tension. Some people say, no, it's all now, all now. Everyone should be 
healed all now. That, I, I love that idea. I, will, I, I, I would love to absolutely see that. But the reality is we all die. Well, what do we all die of? Well, our bodies give out. Why? Because it's sin. So there, there is this kingdom now and not yet. That's why we get new bodies, which would be a great day. So, uh, you know, if you don't like what you see, just hang tight, die, you'll get another one. It'll be great. Um, amen. And Jim, you, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to you getting a new body, man. I'm just saying. No. <laughs> so, why, why are I, so why or why not um, would a Christian embrace or deny the coming literal kingdom. This is important. The reason why I start with this, it's important because um, everything else kind of leans to it. So um, as we're gonna talk about Israel in just a moment, because if you don't believe in a literal kingdom, then the land of Israel doesn't matter. Um, if you do believe in a literal kingdom, then it does matter. So we'll look at land promises in just a moment. Um, why would Christians disagree so starkly that there is a future coming literal kingdom? I mean, just absolutely disagree and also be able to prove their positions, which they can. So in order to answer this question, we need to go back to the Old Testament, look at the, Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. So any discussion regarding an earthly literal kingdom, the millennial thousand-year reign, is connected to the Abrahamic covenant, talking about the fulfillment of the Old Testament land promises made by God to Abraham and to his descendants. Either, here's the question, and these are questions you have to ask, and they're uncomfortable, so don't hear what I'm not saying, just the question. Are the, are the land promises still for today? It's a question you should ask. Either the land promises are still in effect, or they're not. There's not some weird middle ground there. So we have to ask the question. So if we go back to the scriptures, Genesis 12, <clears throat> this is, this is um, God calling Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the, to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Wow, there's some great promises there. Genesis 15, 5, and then we're going to move to verse 18. So he brought Abram out, outside, and said, look towards the heaven, the number of the stars. If you're able to number them, then he, then he, it, then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. To your offspring, now look, I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So these promises seem very clear with boundaries even. I mean, even boundaries. I mean, God promised this is the way it's going to be. But then we have to ask the question that feels uncomfortable, but we need to ask the question, okay, these are promises. Are they conditional promises or unconditional promises? So, um, if a futurist would be like, absolute, unconditioned, doesn't matter. Okay, so we ask the question then. Do, do the fulfillment of these promises of God regarding the land of Israel, 
Do they depend on some way on the obedience of Abraham and the obedience of his descendants to be fulfilled, for this promise to be fulfilled? So were there conditions that got laid out by God that would ensure these land promises for Abraham? Also, could these promises that were given to Abraham be given to someone else, like the church through Christ? If we are heirs of Abraham through Christ, do the land promises belong to us? You ever ask that question? Because it says we're heirs of Christ through Abraham. Like, oh, okay, well, should we move to Israel? I don't know. I, like, I, some of us would like to go and fight now, but, I, you know, it's like, okay. And these are things you, you just, you got to be okay asking. Like, hmm, I don't know. And so I go, hmm, I don't know. Let's, let's keep leaning in. Um, if they're unconditional, so these promises of the land are unconditional, then is the, the promise is still in effect today. It would, it would pertain to Abraham's literal descendants, his, his et- ethnicity from the line of Abraham. In other words, they would only pertain to those that carry his DNA. Just question, anyone ever did one of those DNA things where you spit in a thing and then you send it in and then you realize, oh shoot, now they have my DNA and I didn't know that. But anyway, they, they tell you, they, you know, they, hi, has anybody done that, that you can admit? Okay. Did anyone have Jewish inher- like inheritance in your, in your DNA? Anybody? Yeah, okay, yeah. I, I'm 3% Jew. Do I go? It's 3%, so I guess I am Jewish. Jewish. Jew- okay, never mind. All right. So, but if they're, if they're unconditional, then everybody that has the DNA of any bit in their, that's for them. Or have the land promises already been fulfilled? These are, these are the questions that these different positions hold, and I, I want us to walk through this. Does the Bible reveal that the land promises have been fulfilled and obtained already? That God has already been faithful to Abraham and his descendants, that he already established them in the land. He already took them to the promised land. He already fulfilled them. So how do you answer this question? However, however you answer this question then determines which road you take next. And that's why, that's why we, so many Christians have so many like, you know, you're like, yeah, we agree here, but here we don't. That means we don't agree way down here. Like, oh, okay. So, if, if you believe that they've already been fulfilled, then you are a, an all-millennialist. So you don't believe in the millennial. Um, if no, then you're going to be a millennialist, either pre or post, because both believe in a thousand-year reign. So, so we need to answer these questions, but we first need to look at the Abrahamic covenant. Is it conditional or unconditional according to scriptures? Could Abraham, could he have disobeyed God? Um, Could he have violated some theological principles and terms of the covenant, and the covenant still applied to him? For instance, could Abraham have refused circumcision? Said, no, God, I'm not not doing that. Um, I'm not having my descendants do that. Could um, could he have worshipped another God and still had the land promise fulfilled? 
could he have turned to, and to worship? Because there was all kinds of pagan gods. Um, are, are the promises to Abraham unconditional? In other words, it doesn't matter what he does or his descendants do, it will always apply. The land, I'm talking about the land promises. So Genesis 17 says this, 17.1, and then we're going to move to verse 8 through 10. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham, Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Genesis 22, 15 through 18. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn. So you go, oh, well, by myself, meaning it's, it's, it's unconditional, declares the Lord. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, so this was when he went to sacrifice Isaac, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So if Abraham would have disobeyed, would the land promises apply? Just question. Genesis 26, three through five. I will be with you and I will bless you. And this, excuse me, this is uh, to Isaac. Um, for to you and to your offspring I will give these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So if you were to read this just as, as it is, there's language in here that appears that there, there were things that were going to happen because Abraham obeyed, because you obeyed, because you honored. The covenant was, was now going to be manifested because Abraham obeyed God's voice. Some conditions even extended to Abraham's descendants. So his descendants were also responsible to the conditions of the covenant. If we move to Deuteronomy 11, this is what God says. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children talking of them when you're sitting in your house, when you're walking by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, as long as the heavens are above the earth. For if you will be careful to do all this commanded that I commanded you to do, Loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways, and holding fast to him, then 
the Lord will drive out all these nations before you, and you will dispose nations greater and mightier than you. Every place on, the, on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your territory shall be from the wilderness to, to, uh, to Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, to the, uh, and to the western sea. So when you read this, it seems very clear that the Israelites' possession of the land is directly tied to the obedience that they show towards God. And the Old Testament is clear. Israel was unfaithful. Israel did not obey. There were times of obedience and times of disobedience. And so we know what happened when they disobeyed God. They were sent into exile. They were, they were sent out of the land. So the things they were told to do when they didn't do, they lost possession of the land. And it was, it's, it was a, a, they didn't learn. And so as they obeyed, they were in the land. As they disobeyed, they were out of the land. So now this is why many Christians believe that land promises were forfeited because of their disobedience. But in eschatology, it's not always that easy. So, so people who believe that the, prop, the land promises were forfeited would come to these scriptures and say, see, what well, it says right here, it's conditional. So they're coming to the scriptures, they're reading what it says, they're applying um, what they read and why they believe that. They don't have an evil heart. It's not anti-Semitic, it's not... It's, it, none of that is true. They're just trying to be pure to the scriptures in which they read. And we would have people in our church who would, who would think on both sides. But I, I want us to see that there are reasons why people come to conclusions and then ask ourselves, why did I come to the conclusion that I came to? Um, so this is one of the reasons that some, some Christians would deny a literal kingdom that is within Israel, in Jerusalem, during the second coming of Christ, because they would say this, this is, well, see, it's, they're not serving Christ, so therefore, that's, it's, it's not going to be established. So the reason I share this with you is because, is, is because God wants us to be unified as a church in mission and not divided over what we believe about some of these aspects of the land promises, because People's hearts are to please the word of God, not to be, not to be um, stupid. They're, they're seeking intelligent understanding of what God has said in his word. Again, there is a lot of demonizing about people who believe the land promises don't apply anymore. And, uh, and particularly with whoever you run in or, or whatever, um, Christians will reject Christians and, and in order to associate people who, who reject Christ. That's not to be. That is not our family or those who put their faith in Christ. Um, and we're to serve them first, pursue unity with them first, pursue um, blessing them first. Um, so, but they're all logical of why people come to these conclusions. Practical, biblical reasons why they came to, to this conclusion that I would dis disagree with. And you would disagree with, or maybe you would agree with, and maybe I would agree with, with, with some of their conclusions. So now we need to ask, how do we believe there, there is a literal kingdom ruling from Zion? Because again, this, this pertains to millennialism, 
And then we'll get into later pre or post. But this, this determines that. So I would say most of us, if you grew up in the faith tradition here, you would believe in a thousand year millennial. But there are two sides of every story as it pertains to end time events. So we need to look at the nature of salvation for Jews and Gentiles. This is very important. Within the nature of the kingdom of God and the Abrahamic covenant, what is the nature of salvation? So it's obvious that Abraham and his descendants could not just live however they wanted because there were some, they, if you do this, then you will dwell in the land. Okay. So they couldn't worship other gods because we, we see when they did, they were taken out of the land. They couldn't reject circumcision. They, there were conditions regarding land promises. The land covenants were tied to Israel's obedience and faithfulness. When they turned away from God, they were exiled. Okay. So how do we think the land promises to Abraham are still out there to be claimed today? You ask the question, I, well, I ask the question, if obedience to the land promise, or obedience to God is the pattern we've seen with God, with Israel, they, when they obeyed, they were established in the land. When they disobeyed, they were, they were taken out of the land. When they obeyed, they were in the land. When they rejected Christ, which was the, 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 the fulfillment of the covenant, they were then removed out of the land. So we see this over and over and over again. So if we believe in the land promises, are they still there or have they been forfeited? And so those land promises we saw, they were no, no, no longer entitled to them. So people who believe the land promises are still out there to be claimed, how would they make that claim after you've just read there's conditions to the land? Leviticus 26 reads this. But if in spite of this, you will not listen to me, this is God speaking to the Jews, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury. And I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons. You shall eat the flesh of your daughters. And I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols. And my soul will abhor you. This is God speaking. And I will, and I will lay your cities waste and I will make your sanctuaries desolate. And I will... And I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations. And I will unsheath the sword after you. And your land shall be desolate. And your cities shall be waste. And you go, well, see, that's, that means the land promises are gone. But then, if you <laughs> go down to verse 40, oh, this is just the heart of God. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity. Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob 
And I, look at this, I will remember my covenant with Isaac, Abraham, and I will remember the what? The land. So you go, oh, so what is it? So that sounds like land promises still remain today. But the question is, what is obedience to God today in the new covenant compared to obedience to God under the old covenant? And that's the question we have to ask. So it sounds like, so these land promises are, are, are still remaining. Let's return to the, under the old covenant. So maybe this is God anticipating their rebellion, holds the land, land promises still available to them, and they will receive them if they humble themselves, repent, and make amends. God says even if they're rebellious and unfaithful, contrary to him, if they humble themselves and repent, I will remember the land. But again, in eschatology, <laughs> things are not quite that simple. And so I'm, I'm, I'm striving to help us walk through this to see so we can love our brothers and sisters who might have different views. Um, there's always two sides going at each other. There's always two sides going at each other. Um, some do it well, some don't do it well. Um, the problem is that Leviticus 26, though, is quoted in the New Testament in a very interesting context. So what we just read in Leviticus 26, Paul uses it. So let's, let's first look at the, the verse that's quoted in the, in the New Testament. So Leviticus 26, 11 through 12, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. But I, but I will, for their sake, remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt, in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God, and I am the Lord." Paul then uses this very text, a statement about the Lord's returning them back to the land if they confess their sin. He's going to remember the covenant, remember the land. He's going to dwell with them. And all, the, all those ideas you see in the restoration, Paul uses Leviticus 26 and applies those promises now to the church, the people of God of the new covenant. See, it's still, it, you still go, oh, well, then what is it? That's a great question. This is why we just got, we got to walk through this in, in, a, in a way that helps us think. So Paul, um, in 2 Corinthians, to the Corinthian church, he says, what accord has Christ with, with um, be, le I don't know how to say that, but be leal, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, now look, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So you ask the question now, is this about the land? Is this about something else? Does the same promise is it different? Has it changed? Does it apply differently now? So Paul has just applied the promise to Israel, now to the church. So then the question is, are all the promises to Israel now belong to those of us who are heirs of Christ? 
heirs of Abraham. So this is why things aren't as clean as everyone wants them to be. And, and a person who believes there's no future kingdom of God ruling from Zion at the second coming of Christ would say, see, this promise is spoken for the church now. It doesn't belong to an unbelieving um, person, even though they are the DNA of Abraham. So this is why people have these different ideas. It's not because, again, they're anti-Semitic. It's because they are pursuing purity with the words of God. And as you can see, both, this is why all these positions use the same scriptures to prove their positions. And so you go, okay, so you have to navigate through this in a very um, intellectual way, but a very spiritual way, but a very humble way. Um, but those who believe in a literal thousand-year reign from Zion also, after this scripture, they also have a Bible card, trump card to play. After the resurrection, the disciples expected the restoration of the throne of David. So they expected, hey, Jesus, when, when are you going to come into your kingdom? When are we going to restore Israel to all these promises that are for, for us in the, in the Torah, in, in, the, in the prophets? Acts 1, 6 through 8. So when they had come together, they asked him, asked Jesus. So he, had, he was risen, risen from the dead. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Now, I love Jesus. I wish he would have given a little bit more clarity here. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. He doesn't correct them about the establishment of the kingdom. He doesn't say, oh, hey, hey, boys. No, 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 don't, you know, <laughs> that's not even a thing anymore. He says, it's not for you to know the times, the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. So you go, oh, okay, well then, do they, the land promises still apply? Or wait, there's a, a, so there is a kingdom. There is a ruling from Zion. So, so he doesn't correct them. He doesn't say there's no restoration of the kingdom. Um, and it's all about the church now. He doesn't, he doesn't say that. Um, he's like, I'm not gonna answer this question because it's not for you to know the times and seasons when all this is going on, even though their question reflected their expectation that there was gonna be a kingdom, Jesus doesn't offer some theological correction here. And uh, I think he did it on purpose. So he's, he would smile at us and go, try to figure it out. Uh, now, let, now let's take this passage that we just read and let's go to Romans 11. Very, very well-known um, passage by by folks, um, you do need to read them in context with 9, 10, 11, but we're going to just look at 11. Uh, and so Paul is talking at Israel's rejection of God by rejecting Christ. So it's, it's, the, it's directly connected. The rejection of Christ was the rejection of God. So there is no um, dual covenant that um, Jews, if you have DNA of, of, uh, of Abraham, like I do at 3%, that I could be saved by the law. I could be saved under, under the old covenant. That, that is actually the rejection of God in Romans 
by the Jews was because they rejected Christ, okay? So Jesus was the fulfillment of the covenant, covenant theology, not replacement theology, covenant theology, okay? <clears throat> so, yes, the Gentiles were brought in, but Israel is still in the picture. So you go, okay. So Romans 11, Paul says, so I ask, did they stumble, speaking of the Jews, in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, their trespass salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. So many people still ask me, Jason, do you believe in replacement theology? I say, well, what do you mean by replacement theology? Which is a good question to ask when someone tries to corner you with your position. What do you mean? Because, well, the original plan is that Israel was to provoke the nations of the world to jealousy because of God's goodness on their life and blessing on their life. It, it, that they would go, and we have it, your, your God protects you. Your God provides for you. The nations would say, no, their God is, is taking care of them. They, the nations were scared of the God of Israel, and so it provoked them to jealousy. Now, under the new covenant, whose job is it now to, to make the Jews jealous? So there has been a replacement of who's making who jealous. Israel is not to make the nations jealous. Now, believers, Christians, are to live our lives in a way that this is what I believe, what this means, that, we, they, that Jews would see the prosperity of God. They would see that we, um, that we worship God, that God does things in our life, not through works, but through his grace. We, we would prosper, and, they would, and the church would prosper, and they go, how is it you're prospering? And, and I don't know if you, if you have any Jewish friends. I, I have Jewish friends. They're high-performing people. I mean, they are highly educated, uh, you know, they make vaccines out of a bar of soap. I mean, it, it's like, how, how in the world? It, it, they're high-performing people. But we, according to Scripture, God's going to use us to provoke them to jealousy for their salvation. So you go, wow, what an honor. But how do we do that? What does that mean? So, <clears throat> so, to make Israel jealous, verse 12, <coughs> excuse me. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will, there, will, will their full inclusion mean for the world? So there's, some, there's still the Jews have a very special place in the heart of God. But also, the Gentiles have a very special place in the heart of God, okay? But our role now is to provoke them to jealousy. And I think it's a worthy question to say, God, what does that mean? How can we do that? Without also forgetting that we're called to be a light to the nations, to the Gentile world, and to the Jewish world. So we know that the scripture says, so well, why? Why, why are the Jews special to God? Because the gifts and call of God are, are irrevocable. They're ir irrevocable. So there's, there's something still there. <coughs> and promise is there. It goes on. Romans 11. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And so Paul is talking to the, to the Gentiles. 
But if some of the boundaries were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in, excuse me, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. So this is the haughtiness, the arrogance that the Gentiles are like, oh, ooh, they, God broke those branches off so I could be here, so I'm better then. No. He warns them that's the same, that's the same arrogance that the Jews originally had, that we are the people of God and no one else is. And then they rejected Christ. And then they were broken off. And now the Gentiles are like, ooh, now we're the people of God and they have fallen so far that they can't even get saved anymore. And Paul's like, excuse me? Like, no, you could get saved so they can get saved too. Like, what are you talking about? So, verse 20. Um, so so that you, you might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you. Provided you, can, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. In other words, if you think that they are not savable, that is such an arrogant, prideful thing. They need Jesus. That's why also in Romans, in, in Romans, in this section, Paul says, how then are they going to hear unless someone preaches to them? And how then is someone going to go preach to them unless they're sent? So the whole context was the Jews. So there, is this, there, there was this this. Belief, I don't know where it came from in the Christian church, that Christians can't preach the gospel to Jews because it reminds them of, you know, of the past tragedy. And it's true, they've been through so much. But real Christians can. Real Christianity understands what a beautiful thing when they are brought in, that we would reach them, we'd serve them, we'd love them, we'd reach them for the purpose of the gospel. And we would demonstrate God's prosperity in our life to provoke them to jealousy. Um, we should preach the gospel to the Jews. They're, why? Because the Bible says we should. And so how, everything we do is so that they could be saved, just like everything we do in the, in the world is that so that they, people can be saved. For God didn't spare the natural branches. Um, verse 23, and even then, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. So this context is about them being able to be grafted back in. Also the context is, is they, through unbelief, were broken off. Unbelief in what? It wasn't the law, unbelief in Christ. And he says some, not all, some. So there are believing Jews that are grafted in. It's also important for us to understand that the Gentiles, what he's saying to you, the Gentiles, you don't support the root no more than the Jews support the root because the root is Christ. So he's the root. He gets all the glory. He gets all the honor. Verse 24, for if you were cut 
from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? I, when I see that, I think this is, this is gonna be a, something that happens that it's so easy for, we're gonna see both Jews and Gentiles come to the olive tree, which is Christ. And it's gonna be something quick because it's, uh, it's gonna be faster. That's just a, an idea, but anyway. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. And so we need to ask the question, and we won't get to it tonight, who is all Israel? Because the Gentiles are grafted in to the, to the root. Then there's gonna be a time that that in the fullness of the Gentiles, the Jews are, dra- are grafted in. Who is Israel? Under the new covenant, who is Israel? And so this is what you have to kind of massage some of this language. It doesn't mean it excludes other things, but in this con, who is the Israel that Paul is talking about? So as we look at these positions, for those who would say, um, see the promises to Israel um, are now all for the church. Or for, for those who would say there's no literal millennial kingdom, the land promises don't matter, um, we then see the covenant of God still remaining with the people of Israel. The land covenant promises, Jewish people from the line of Abraham. So it's important we understand why other Christians come to different conclusions. It's not demonic, it's how they interpret the Bible and prophecies. We understand that there are reasons that, that, that believers should be able to reason together. They should, they should be able to talk. They should be able to process. They should be able to pray together regarding the understanding of what God wants them to understand and to know about the end times. So this teaching today, it's, not as, it's maybe not as sexy as you wanted it to be, and, and you're wanting conclusions, you're wanting what's, I think it's important we understand how to think, why other people come to different conclusions, and then be able to ask ourselves, why do I come to this conclusion? So it's much more difficult to, to deal with, with these, these scriptures than what people realize. And so and because we don't like obscurity, we, we can get dogmatic about stuff because it makes us feel better. And so I want to encourage us as believers, what matters? And, and what, what, let's guard our hearts from division, but what matters? And what's a greater testimony to Christ? That we would, that we would have unity, we process through how kind of we see some of these mysteries, and when something's a mystery, we call it a mystery, and we're okay with that, um, but what are we to do? This is how I end every one of these, until the return of Christ. These are the necessary things. Yes, there is a biblical requirement to Christians to have an affection for the Jews because the gifts and call of God are irrevocable. He has a special place in his heart, but he also has a special place in his heart for your neighbor. He also has a special place in, your heart, in, in his heart for this city, that we would understand 
what it means to prioritize how we live our lives and are a part of God's kingdom advancing on the earth. We, when we look back at Romans, we don't support the root. Jews don't support the root. Christ is the root. And so the root is Jesus, but we are called by God to be a part of an advancing kingdom on the earth. We are called by God to pray that his kingdom would come. We are called by God to believe that there is no reason why our city cannot be transformed and changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no reason to believe that we can't speak up for the innocent. There's no reason to believe that we can't be the light in the midst of darkness. No reason to believe that we can't apply our faith and the word of God in every area of our life and see the kingdom of God established and advanced. And there's no reason that we should use our eschatology, eschatology to divide. We should use it to lean in, but keep the main thing, the main thing, the main thing. Amen? And so we'll continue on our, on our next looking at, I'm going to be looking at more of the, uh, the, the covenant of, of, uh, of God to Israel, and we will look at the rapture, and we'll look at the 70 weeks. And so um, and we'll keep walking through this like this. And friends, thank you for, for coming, coming open, um, allowing me to teach. Um, you know, I, I, I do ask you that if, if you hear, and this is what maturity is, if you hear people disparaging or being like, can you... Um, just, just speak to them and, and, and share what I just shared with you regarding unity, regarding the essentials. And just speak to them lovingly and, uh, and ask them to do the biblical thing. If they have a problem, I think the Bible says you should go talk to that person, right? And so I just encourage, if you could do that and we could just pursue unity together, I love you and uh, you love me. My heart is to present this in a way that when I stand before God, I can say, Lord, I did my best to be pure and keep Jason out of the way and allow your word to speak. And, uh, and I pray you, you see and hear my heart in this as well. I love you, and I'm excited for what is ahead of, 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 of the end times. It's going to be a blast, and we're going to get to see God do some great things. I do believe in a victorious end, and I do believe we're going to see a great harvest and revival on the face of the planet, and we get to be a part of it. I don't know when it will be. Um, I don't know if it'll be in 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, or next week, but I'm ready. And I wanna, if, if I'm not around, I want to prepare the next generation to also be preparing for what God has called us to do as the church to transform the world. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your mercy. Thank you, God, for your word that speaks to us. God, thank you for this church family that we, uh, that we come to listen and to open our hearts to receive from you. We love you, we bless you, in Jesus' name, amen.